Hey, everyone. We have a really fun guest today, Chef Mike Harris. He's been a corporate chef for 18 years and has worked for a variety of companies, both large and small. If you've ever wondered what it takes to get a new menu item at McDonald's, Chef Mike walks us through the not-so-simple process and gives us all the -the behind-the-scenes details. Chef Mike has also built a following on social media and most recently was the host of a Dungeons & Dragons-themed cooking show on Amazon Prime's freebie called Heroes Feast. We had a ton of fun swapping stories and we didn't even get through them all. We will definitely have Chef Mike back on in the future. If you are enjoying the Food Industry Insider, please follow and subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We would really appreciate a five-star review on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is a great zero-cost way to support our show. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad you took some time out from your job to do this. And you are our first corporate chef. So you're going to have to spend some time explaining to people what corporate chef are. And I know that you started out as a chef. So everybody knows what a chef is, but you can take us uh, how you got from the chef to the corporate chef. And I'll let you take it from there. So, you know, my, like, uh, like many young chefs, I grew up cooking with mom and grandma, you know, at an early age. Mike, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a chef. I, I'm going to have my own restaurant. It's going to be great. I'm of a certain age when the Food Network became popular, but I grew up mm-hmm. on Yan Can Cook, Frugal Gourmet, Great Chefs, all of these kind of older school food TV mm-hmm. programs that were a little more um, dry, you know, it, it was exciting to see how you make things, but it was very more demonstration. And then Emerald Live happened where it's a show and he's mm. got a, you know, catchphrases. And I'm like, this looks exciting. I definitely want to do this. Uh, so I went to culinary school at Johnson and Wales in Providence, Rhode Island. I have degrees in culinary arts and culinary nutrition. Uh, and that is because I quickly learned I did not want to be a, a chef in my own restaurant. You know, I worked in restaurants starting when I was 15. I was part of this pro start Mm -hmm. program, worked all through college. uh, And then I got interested in food science and product development. The culinary nutrition coursework included that. And that really piqued my interest. The story goes, I also play guitar and wanted to be in a band. So nights, weekends, holidays, that's show night. Okay. I couldn't be in the back, right? I couldn't be in the back. Uh, you know, cutting stuff. I need to be up front, melting faces, guitar solos, the whole work, <laughs> the whole bit there. So I somewhat a little bit fell into the R&D chef world uh, and have been doing it. I'm not obviously a famous musician, uh, but have been a research <laughs> chef since 2006 and worked for companies like Orville Kent Foods, Nation Pizza and Foods. Uh, I was a corporate chef for McDonald's uh, for about four years. So I have plenty of stories of my time there. Uh, And then, you know, a a pandemic hit. So I also had to be a consultant and do uh, other kinds of videos. I started a YouTube channel that was uh, more for general consumers. But then I have always used social media in a capacity to, like, build an audience. So those brand deals, you'll, hey, use discount code Chef Mike and get 10% off your whatever. I would make (laughs) that kind of content as well. 
No shame. No shame. No, absolutely not. (laughs) And then uh, I uh, now for the last two and a half years work for a global ingredient supplier as their R&D chef here in Chicago. So um, still love, you know, all my side fun projects. I do goofy things on the side all the time. Uh, but still as a research chef, uh, which again is very different than a traditional restaurant chef kind of role. Well, tell us how it was difficult to go from a chef to a corporate chef. So tell us what a corporate chef is and how you got your foot in the door to do that. Sure. So, um, you know, I first got my foot in the door as an intern for Orville Kent food. So a food, a refrigerated prepared food manufacturing company. And um, one of the the most difficult things for a restaurant chef to understand is nobody cares about your food opinion. You work for a brand. You are developing food items for a certain customer that's usually already established. So you can demand and decide how to feed your family and what you want to cook for yourself. But it is your job to listen to your customers and make things that they want. And sometimes that means, you know, I worked at um, um, the Wentworth Club in Virginia Water, Surrey. It was a very posh golf course where the Volvo mm-hmm. PGA championships were held, cooking for rich oil tycoons and celebrities. And then my first job out of college was to make the cheapest macaroni salad for Walmart with all the functional ingredients and all the things that would go into it to hit a price point. So there was a little learning curve of like, this isn't what, why don't you just use all these natural ingredients? Well, it would never uh, survive supply chain and all of these Mm -hmm. things. There is not a chef on a manufacturing floor, hand sprinkling herbs over the top of a thing. Um, So you really have to learn like, okay, I will try to influence the best I can as a chef, but there are some realities that come along with that where, we, you can't appropriately manufacture something in that manner. So figure it out. Shelf life is a concern. Cost is a concern. Um, so it, it is a very different world than a restaurant chef, but there are still opportunities to cook like a chef when making gold standards and, and things of that nature. So, Do all food companies have corporate chefs? I would say at this point, most major food companies and brands usually have some kind of corporate chef or a food savvy food scientist or product developer. Even at a certain point, there might be consultants brought in to understand, you know, a food scientist can make the thing last, manufacture it how you want it, you know, how you want it to be. But let's say your customer is asking for new flavor trends in the industry. And can you make an Aleppo chili agave something or other? Well, a food scientist is not as savvy in that world. So you may mm-hmm. bring a chef for blue, style, uh, blue sky ideation concepts, how to translate real cooking techniques uh, techniques into the food manufacturing world. So I would love to cook down uh, my Italian aunt's gravy or marinara sauce for 12 hours in a manufacturing setting. That is going to cost a lot of money. Okay, caramelized sugars to get the same flavor notes that you might get when cooking down. So there are functional ingredients to translate and a chef can teach a food scientist. This is classically how you would do it. 
This is the benefits of doing it. Now let's figure out how we can do it in a manner that makes sense for the business. So that is, and then, you know, sales wise, I am still currently training some sales people on how to talk food because ultimately it's tell me what it tastes like. What is the mouth feel? What are aromas that you're in? You know, and talk about it like a chef and not like a scientist, because there are, as you know, a variety of reasons why people buy things that they do. And some right. of that is it's delicious. I like the taste. I like the flavor. It looks cool. So that is something that, uh, you know, you're always training other people on with that chef background. Do most corporate chefs know how to, I mean, get technical, scale things up, you know, go from a one thing on the on the bench, you know, one one recipe to making 10,000 gallons or 10,000, you know, items. Um, I think that's very much dependent on the individual, especially this day and age. And when a company is hiring a corporate chef, they you know, the first step is to understand the brand you're working for. If I'm a corporate chef for a Whole Foods commissary behind the glass business, well, my job is to come up with recipes using the ingredients that are available to me that are allowed, um, you know, keeping it all natural, organic, gluten-free, whatever it might be. And your corporate chef job might be to instill that culture into everything that you make. So it will not be heavy food manufacturing or whatever. Let's say you work for a, you're a corporate chef for a frozen pizza manufacturer that makes the five for 10 or three for 15 style pizza. Well, your job is very different than that Whole Foods consumer. My consumers at that place want the cheapest thing. They're not brand loyalists. How do we make it more affordable while making it as tasty and as, you know, flavorful as possible? So again, very different scenario depending on who you're a corporate chef for. You might be a, a corporate chef for a trade publication that makes consumer-facing recipes. Well, then, that's an easy one because you don't need to really add functional ingredients, but it's more understanding the, the process, the steps, the principles in that manner. So, again, it's very dependent on who you're working for, what their goals are, and who their customer is. Yeah, I've seen some trade magazines or whatever. They have recipes, and they put ingredients in there I can't find. Yeah, that is, that is also a, uh, there is a level set too of understanding your audience where if you are a trained chef, but you are making the cheap pizza, do they want an exotic chili flavored ingredient that no one's familiar with that's hard to source from a part of the world that may be affected by everything that's happening in the world? That is not logical because that consumer wants cheese, pepperoni, supreme, those kinds of things. So sometimes a chef may overshoot, and that's part of that learning curve of understanding your audience, your customer. They're going to tell you what they want. Um, so it certainly, again, changes depending on the role uh, that you're in. Yeah, you know those meal kits, you know, like Green Chef and those? Absolutely. They they make wonderful recipes. They're easy to follow. It's delicious, but they inevitably in every one of them, there's an ingredient. I don't know what it is. They'll call it, they'll call it chili seasoning or they'll call it, you know, aioli sauce. And you're like, but what's in it? 
I know, you know, like, you know, and so I suppose they do that. So you have to come back to them because you can't get it on your own. You can't like make it, can't go to the store and buy all the ingredients and just repeat it. But I was like, that would be a cool job. That would be a cool chef job That's to a fun do. One too, because again, it's it's at a certain level where it's less food manufacturer and more recipe development. So I need you to cook, you know, more like a caterer, commissary, working for a hotel or a cruise ship. You know, a cruise ship is a good example to a meal kit. I need ten thousand chicken breasts grilled off and then cooled off, and then I need to make fifty thousand pounds of risotto, and then I'm going to combine them in a package, and then I need to test how a consumer might reheat it. Is it microwave, oven, air fryer, combination of it? And you have to do those kinds of tests. Where if you're a corporate chef for a bakery and it's bread, a consumer is just opening and eating. You do not have to worry about those things, but shelf life, the um, staling of the product and all those, you have a different requirement, different set of things you have to worry about. So again, it's it's what you like. It's how you want to represent yourself as a research chef. Are you willing to do what the customer wants if that goes against your personal values? I don't want to feed my kids that ingredient, but your customer wants that in there for XYZ reason because it will be affordable for those consumers that don't care that that ingredient is yeah. in there. So it is also my job to be be very neutral in the discussion, especially in my role now because we have a gigantic portfolio of ingredients, both of which would be a Whole Foods appropriate, all natural, organic, non-GMO thing. And then the other flip side, your preservatives, your flavors, and all those things, we have all of them. Um, so it's really understanding who the customer is and who that consumer might be. So the big advantage going to a corporate chef job from being a chef is the schedule. No no holidays, no weekends, there's no schedule, evenings. There's uh, mental health reasons, you know, working a restaurant job. Everyone you know is not working while you are working, uh, I'm a dad with two wonderful little daughters, so I want to spend as much time with them as possible. Usually the salary is better. Um, I'm on my feet a lot less, um, but I do have friends who are still in the industry who will tell me I'm a sellout and all of these things. <laughs> but then I call them on a Friday night. Let, let's go out. What are you guys doing? Oh, you got to work. Okay, yep. so there is give and take. There is not, I do not think one of those jobs is better than the other. It is very different. I spent my time in restaurants and uh, I like, you know, I have all these fun side projects and fun things that I like to do. So being a research chef definitely gives me the opportunity for family time and for the fun stuff. You you went into the uh, the corporate world and I know you mentioned some of the companies and some of them. Obviously, we all know, like McDonald's, and we, and I'm sure most of the audience may not know the other companies. So, um, the difference between the two, I know McDonald's being a restaurant, Orville Kent not being a restaurant, you know. So, talk about the little bit of differences between those types of companies. Sure. Um, so, if you work for Orville Kent Foods or a seasoning company or a spice blend company, you are kind of the beginning of the process. Your suppliers 
are, it's a very different scenario. If I'm a seasoning company, I'm usually the first step that a food manufacturer might reach out to. So Orville Kent Foods would reach out to a Wixen, to a, uh, you know, uh, Illis or one of these IFF. Yeah, all of these companies that are, those ingredients go into making a food item. So when it's time to schmooze, when it's time to take people out to dinner, when it's time to engage with your customer, if you're the seasoning spice blend company, you're the one taking people out to dinner. Oh, when fun. Oh, yeah. Then when you're at <laughs> Orville Kent Foods, Orville Kent Foods is trying to sell to top 100 chain restaurants, supermarkets. So um, the seasoning companies might take me out to dinner, but now I am taking out to dinner the buyers from the rest or from the restaurants or the supermarkets or whatever. So when you work for McDonald's, you are the end of the line. You have multiple suppliers who then go into multiple manufacturers and those supplier manufacturer partners want their product in your restaurant. So you, I mean, when the resources that a McDonald's has as far as supplier support Every company ever wants their product in McDonald's. They are so large that if you sell the McDonald's, you got it kind of made. Um, mm-hmm. So each some companies have specific McDonald's business units that only handle McDonald's because they are so large. So when you're in R&D chef role there, I mean, I am appropriate. I turn down a lot of the things that people may offer. Let's go golfing. Let's go. I got tickets to this. Let's do that. Like it is people are trying to sell you things constantly. And if you call them when you are McDonald's, they will pick up the phone at midnight. It's their kid's birthday. They will pick up the phone because they want your business. When you work for a small independent entrepreneur who might need something, people are not rushing to pick uh, the phone up for your call. That is a reality that people need to deal with. It's very annoying in my position because I've been in both scenarios, um, but that's the realities of kind of how those businesses work. Um, so certainly when you work for one of the most recognizable brands in the world, you have some power influence. And, uh, when you develop a thing, it may change the world market value of that ingredient. You can buy all of it, all of the blueberries, all of the shrimp, if you (laughs) want, certainly there's processes in place to not do that. But then when you're the smaller guy, You need to be a little more nimble, understanding like I cannot get a custom mayonnaise for my company. I have to purchase something off the shelf and then Mm -hmm. I need to use that in my development process. McDonald's could say, I want a new mayonnaise that's only ours, unique to us, proprietary that no one else can have. Your volumes are through the roof. You could have whatever you want, McDonald's. So it's, again, a very different role. So you have to be very nimble. Um, You have to be able to pivot. You have to be able to reprioritize. um, And that's more career advice, depending on what company you go to. Don't think that you have the same influence as when you were at McDonald's, as when you are now uh, making a YouTube channel for yourself. You do not have the same audience. People are not knocking on your door for opportunities there. So understanding that is, is very helpful. 
when McDonald's wants to do something, I, I kind of know that this is their process. Like when they, and my example is one that's their seasonal thing. I don't even know if they still do it. The McRib. Yep. They would go out and say, we need a barbecue sauce. And they would have companies falling all over them to present them with a barbecue sauce. And then they would have them come in, demonstrate the said barbecue sauce, and then they would decide which one gets it. That's how they kind of do all their things. Yeah. I guess we should, I guess we should back up a second because some people think that McDonald's is a food company. And I'm always like, no, McDonald's makes nothing. McDonald's doesn't make a single thing. They assemble food products at a restaurant, but they don't make anything. They didn't make the mayonnaise. They didn't make this barbecue sauce. They didn't make, now it's theirs. Nobody else has it because it's a secret formula, but that they are actually not, you know, a food manufacturing because people talk to about McDonald's, the food company. I'm like, no, it's not a food company. There are only, there are only a few things that they are vertically integrated with, like their chicken, for instance. However, the manufacturers process the chicken, grind it, bread it, batter it. It's coming into the restaurant in that manner. And then on site, especially now, there are only a few things like the burger patties come in ground and they are cooked on site. Um, The round eggs for the egg McMuffin, that is fresh cracked in the restaurant. But there are other eggs, the folded eggs come in already made. They're reheated. Um, The breakfast burrito scrambled egg is frozen. It's all you just put it in a wrap. Uh, and then the scrambled egg that's served for like the big breakfast, that's a liquid egg product that somebody made and you just pour it onto the grill and cook it until it's done. Um, so th- it is not a scratch kitchen. That is what, you know, a traditional mm-hmm. restaurant where they make everything on site that would be considered a scratch kitchen. This is the complete opposite, not complete opposite. There are commissaries or like a um, Uh, convenience stores where it's even less like we just need to be able to microwave the thing or put it on a roller grill and serve it. So there's a little less, not necessarily skill, but a different type of service model for that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of McDonald's is absolutely assembly. um, And that's where fast food restaurants make their money. Their their big metric is, especially at this point, because not as many people are going into the restaurants, how many cars can we serve in an hour. That is a huge metric in fast food. Uh, you know, with a pizza place, how many pizzas can we make and deliver uh, at any given time? And that is a big metric on success for sales and things like that. Yeah. So what does a corporate chef do at McDonald's? So corporate chef's job is to somewhat manage the menu offerings depending on your category. So as the manager of culinary innovation for the U.S. menu, Um, They also had a global team that helped manage, you know, Canada, Mexico, every other country. Um, Usually a lot of uh, R&D and culinary groups report to marketing. So marketing will tell R&D, we have determined for X and business insights and consumer insights group. We have determined that we need a spicy chicken thing on the menu. Here are the reasons why. So that marketing and consumer insight groups will use Technomics, Mintel, Chain Store Guide, whatever it is. 
take an evaluation of their menu, so the restaurant menu, look at competition, see what they're doing, look at price points, and determine we need a spicy chicken sandwich at $2.99 price point because there's a gap in our menu. We don't think that it will be cannibalistic to other menu items. Our competition is growing in chicken category, so we need to change our offering to a lot of times people want to steal share, and that means there are only X amount of people who are eating chicken in a day. McDonald's does not want you to go to competition. They want you to come to us. So they want to steal share from other people. How do we get the Chick-fil-A consumer to come to McDonald's instead? And how often that happens? So a lot of that data is usually determined before a project starts, at least at McDonald's and some of the other R&D roles that I've been in. So then it's our job to come up with gold standards. And that's where I get to put the chef hat back on and make the control like a chef would. Here's a spicy chicken sandwich with wahio chili and agave syrup and whatever. Here's uh, one of those. Here's another idea. Here's another idea. And, you know, maybe come up with 20 or 30 paper concepts, narrow it down to the 10 or five that we want to test further. We then reach out to the supplier groups, especially in McDonald's. Uh, if you're in a smaller group, you're going to kind of be doing this work yourself. But when you work for McDonald's, let's bring in every sauce supplier, every bun supplier, every condiment supplier, our vegetable group, uh, the dairy suppliers, if it's cheese or whatever it is. And let's do a big huddle. Here's what we want to do. Everybody go make your best versions of all these things. And we, as the R&D team and marketing, are going to try these and decide what we want the thing to kind of be. So after doing a lot of that stuff, it's usually pared down to one, two, or three items that we not only would put in consumer panels uh, internally. So, you know, the, the doors open, you evaluate food items, you yeah. score it. And you get some data that way. Also, the consumer tests and focus groups in different regions. When you're a monster company, you have all the resources. So you can do all of these very expensive, elaborate tests in different regions, getting data from different types of consumers, different regions. Maybe I want to bring in heavy McDonald's users or I want to bring in heavy Chick-fil-A consumers. I want the competition to come in and try this um, to get their data on if they like it or not. It could go anywhere from jar scores just about right to how much, you know, how much sauce is on it. Is it too much? Not enough? Or is it just about right? You could do triangle tests if you're which one do you prefer? Three of these are uh, we're serving you three items. One of these is a little different. Can you determine which one is different? Uh, or there's more elaborate nine-point hedonic scale tests on really specific <laughs> attributes. The crunch level, the type of breading, the amount of breading, the amount of marinade in the chicken, the cut, the size, the shape. And you can get all of this data supporting the changes you want to make. So then we've determined with data that this supplier sauce was most liked by this consumer group. These are who we're wanting to target. Now we start implementing them in a restaurant. Let's get this sauce and full build into the restaurant so we can see how the crew 
reacts to making it? Does this make things in the kitchen's operation more difficult? Because if we decide it needs to be hand-breaded, and that is something the crew have not done before, Mm -hmm. how does that impact everything in the kitchen who's designed to do everything fast? We just want to crank people out the drive-through. So if I have an employee that needs to spend a lot of time not building sandwiches and serving customers, we need to figure out how that affects the restaurant. It has to be done by a 15-year-old. <laughs> correct. Absolutely. 100% correct. You have to assume the person making it doesn't want to be there, is not a, a um, culinary skilled laborer. I am not saying that those roles you do not have to be skilled at because they are very difficult. If you've ever worked at a McDonald's that is understaffed at a peak time, it will kick you in the pants and you Mm -hmm. will be humbled very quickly. I will not even compare my ability to like expert level McDonald's crew people who know how to crank food items out. It It is a skilled job to do. My role as a research chef is different than that kind of role. So we're yeah. not comparing apples to apples in that regard, but um, but you are correct. And how long does it take from we have the huddle with the suppliers to a food item gets on the menu? If it's something as simple as we want a new McNugget sauce, that could be six months. Just put it in a cup. We're handing the cup out to a consumer. At the same time, I was part of the chicken team at McDonald's, and it was two or three years before launching a thing because of, you know, if, if you're implementing a new chicken item nationally at McDonald's, that's 14,000 restaurants that need to be trained on how to make it, need to receive the items. Uh, it needs to be manufactured. You also need to have a certain amount in storage to handle sales fluctuations. Like there are so many things involved with that. That it's not just the development, it's the ramp up and the testing. So I I talked about, we're going to put it in one restaurant. Okay, now let's put it in 30 restaurants in this region and get data from consumers who are directly going. It is not the pristine consumer panel where all the executive chefs and the suppliers are making the thing perfect. Now let's see what consumers think when the 15-year-old who doesn't want to be there makes it for them and all the issues that may pop up with that happening. So we get data from the restaurants, from the consumers, from the the owner-operators on, is this crash in the kitchen? Can you guys manage? Now let's do a regional test, maybe 50 stores or 100 stores in a region to see how this sells. Maybe we find that McDonald's consumers are no longer buying the premium chicken sandwich. They're trading down to this cheaper one. Well, now we're making less money per sale. So we're cannibalizing our own sales. No new customers are coming in the door. And now we're making less money by offering this item. Okay, does it make business sense to offer this new chicken item? Or do we leave the premium chicken sandwich there, which is more profitable for the restaurant? So those are things you may learn a year and a half after R&D Chef has done all this work. It's in 100 restaurants. Breaks, pump the brakes. It's not going to be profitable for us. We're not going to do it. Well, a lot of people like it. It's not profitable for us. Okay. It is a business. To your point, it is not a restaurant per se. 
Um, there are a lot of other factors that go into it, including owner-operator influence, their opinions on things. Um, but ultimately, we hope in that setting to do a successful national launch that sells well for a long time and it stays on the menu for a long time. Something like the McRib is more of an LTO. A lot of people will buy uh, buy their McRib once and go back to their regular orders. As much as they're super fans of the McRib, there are not enough of them to sustain sales at a level that makes sense. So then it comes off the menu, hype gets built up, we'll put it on, maybe it's going to come back, who knows? Um, so there's those kinds of items that are developed all the time as well. Well, I have a little McDonald's story for you. That's so when I, when I moved to Chicago, and it was 1983, 84. I was just born. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Your son will appreciate that comment. Okay. I think he's laughing. Yeah, no. <laughs> so it was probably 19, actually, 1985. I move into an apartment complex, and the woman who lives across the hall from me works for McDonald's, corporate. Okay, so I meet her and everything. I find out that she is their R&D team. She, an only person. Okay, so think about how many people you had in R&D when you worked there. And her job was basically what I know now, what she was telling me that was she would just take all these sandwiches that suppliers had, you know, supplied all the, the buns, the meat, the cheese, everything. And she would assemble them and put them in a warmer and test how long you could keep them warm. I mean, she would test, you know, the, everything was tested. Like, do, do we like the taste of this, that, things like that. Very surface. And she, one day, you know, she told her boss, she goes, I'm so bored. First of all, she's non-degreed. She's got this job. Like they just interviewed her, said she was a nice person. She could have the job. And she said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Can I, you know, what, what else could I do at McDonald's? They said, well, the next job up from this, you know, the next level, if we gave you a promotion, we, we could promote you to an associate store manager in one of the restaurants. So that's where R&D was, came wow. in, the, in the hierarchy of what? McDonald's yeah, at the that, time. Is, that is certainly not how it is. Uh... And I mean, she was at the corporate right there in Oak Brook. And she, and she went, uh, so she said, yeah, I can't do this anymore. This is the most boring job I've ever had in my life. And so she went to, she went and worked in the stores. Oh, worked in, oh yeah. She said, this is so boring. So she went and worked at the stores and fast forward years later, as I'm a recruiter and I'm looking at McDonald's, I'm going, why? They're hiring PhDs. They're hiring. They, you know, they went from this one little girl testing the sandwiches, you know, I think she was 23, 24 years old, testing sandwiches in a lab. It was a lab setting all by herself all day to having PhDs and product development and corporate chefs and all this stuff. Like how many people were in R&D when you left there? When I left, oh man, I'd say R&D for the U.S. team, there were probably one, two, three, really three culinary heavy, six that were more um, product developers. So they may not be chef focused, but they're, right, but they're R&D yep. culinary uh, maybe four or five food scientists as well. 
um, that were Don't forget, she, she was quality assurance too. So how many quality So that is something I wanted to point out that separate from the path that I just said, while that is going on, there is QA, food safety going on. When I used to walk into McDonald's kitchens, pretty regularly, there would be suppliers that are cooking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of runs of cheeseburger or you know burgers just cooking the burger testing out uh cooking chicken mcnuggets or chicken patties and temperature probing every single one to come up with a bunch of data to confirm that the cook times are food safe so there is this big curve they call it they used to call it mcdonald's done where chefs 165 degrees on that chicken we're good at the restaurant, they are not going to temp every single item. So the the cooking process needs to adjust for the 15-year-old that doesn't care, as well as the variable in size, in shape, in thickness, so that a majority of the food items are probably chicken items would be cooked to 175 degrees, 178, which as a chef, that's overcooked. From a food mm-hmm. safety perspective, that takes into account if if the restaurant is cooking on an inefficient fryer, so it's not as hot as it should be, and the piece they are cooking is on the highest end of the range, it needs to account for that because McDonald's volume is so big, statistically, it could make a lot of people sick. So there mm-hmm. is this cooking no, McDonald's do done process to make sure for food safety purposes, but that take variability in account. At the same time, all of that needs to be developed and tested when those new items come out. So there's another team doing that. And then the QA department of confirming when a thing is made to confirm that it's in the ranges. We're evaluating it, this run of product, this batch. So everything that in supermarkets, you know, this is not just a McDonald's thing, has a code and a number associated with the case to know which line it was run on in which manufacturing facility at what time. Every ingredient that went into it has a code number, a lot number, to trace it back for food safety purposes. And the food safety team at McDonald's is always running these tests to confirm that that run is safe, is good to go, will allow it to be served. If they see issues, they might pull lot numbers, you know, for further testing. <laughs> there is so many other things going on than just what we were doing at the, you know, um, operations developing the training material for 14,000 <laughs> restaurants. I need the plaque that shows the steps. Here's how you would assemble it. Um, this, the way that this item is made, it makes our crew walk too many steps. So we might think about removing a refrigerator from this section and try to fit it into this section because that is six steps less every crew member needs to do for every order. Because if 14,000 restaurants, a hundred orders a day, six steps per order adds up to millions and millions and millions of extra steps. I'm talking actual feet uh, yeah. in front of you <laughs> that they are trying to alleviate for crew to make it easier on them and to serve food faster. So all of that 
that's one thing about the McDonald's movie, The Founder, that mm-hmm. uh, there's one scene when they're in a parking lot with chalk drawings of the restaurant and they're timing people and deciding, oh, if you move it here, that mentality is still very much in place in the corporate McDonald's office. And I'm assuming most fast food or, you know, restaurants in general should really look at their kitchen and process in that manner because you can save quite a bit of time, money, energy, and crew thought process developing things in that manner. There was a, I had a favorite comedian once he was doing a little skit on, on, he always did skits on fast food, but he was doing a McDonald's. He's standing in line. He's like, he wanted people to hurry up. And he's like, hurry up. And he's going, the menu at McDonald's has not changed in 10 years. You should have known last <laughs> week what you were going to order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I haven't personally, I mean, I'm glad you don't work for McDonald's anymore so I can say this. I haven't been into McDonald's in 10 years, you know? So I don't, you know, when you're talking about new items, I'm thinking, have they ever had a new item? I think they put bacon on the sandwich once or something and we go for uh, the McRib comes and goes. But I've, I, I just figured that, you know, we don't really have that many new items, but and all the work they go through, and I know that even not having been there, even if they do have one or two items new, they don't flood. They don't change their menus like a family restaurant does. Yeah, or it's a, a there's a core restaurant. menu. There's I think eleven or thirteen, whatever it is, core menu items that do not no. change. And then, no. um, you know, those LTOs. And and the other difficult thing to navigate from the R and D chef perspective is that it's R&D and marketing and operations from a corporate level almost have to sell these new items to owner-operators first. So an owner-operator group, they vote in, you know, in different regions on if they want the new items on their menu. All those testings, the 50-store test, the 100-store test, all of that data is compiled to show to make a business case on why this should be on the menu. And then corporate needs to present that to the influential owner operators who will then decide, yeah, we want it or no, they won't. There were many times when we had the data supporting you should launch this item this way. And owner operators are like, no, we want you to make a knockoff of Chick-fil-A. We want it to taste like Chick-fil-A. Well, we did a bunch of tests and we have data supporting that our chicken sandwich is actually preferred even by Chick-fil-A. Nah, we're not we're not going to do that. We want we want this for our restaurants. OK, I got a little annoying on, on my end for sure. Now, I know that McDonald's in the United States, I'm pretty sure that if I went to a McDonald's on the East Coast, it'd be similar to the one on the West Coast. But I know that if you go to one in England or one in, you know, Vietnam or one in, you know, Thailand or Hong Kong or something like that, there could be actually items on there that we would not even eat in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Now you had nothing to do with those. You didn't do the international uh, No, things. I was not part of the global team that would uh, develop those items, I will say, and I, I fully admit. And anyone who says differently, I think they're uh, maybe blowing smoke, but every McDonald's in every other country is better quality and more exciting on their menu. In every other country, including Canada and Mexico, they're a little more willing to wait. They do not have the same volume issues that McDonald's U.S. has for national launches. It is very difficult to import and export food from the United States 
to wherever. So it makes a lot more sense of figuring out how to make it with more local ingredients and local manufacturers in that area. And the crew who work in these restaurants, since they're more since customers are more than willing to wait, you can make more complex flavors, more complex steps in uh, in the development and things like that. Uh, and that consumer base is more willing to try new things. The McDonald's U.S. consumer wants it fast and wants value. That is their priority. Other countries. They're, well, let's try this new um, uh, shrimp patty burger something or other. It's a filet of fish, but instead of fish, it's a shrimp patty and it has an interesting coleslaw or whatever on it or, you know, more produce. It is so hard for McDonald's to sell produce, lettuce and tomatoes and things like that on burgers. People just want the meat and cheese and bacon and sauce Mm -hmm. and we're good to go. Onions are probably the the biggest vegetable that uh, consumers <laughs> in the U.S. kind of want. But leafy greens and stuff, that's a premium here, where in other countries, that's a little more common. So it's a very different audience, which goes back to my initial comment of knowing your audience, who the consumer is. An R&D chef for the global team and an R&D chef for the U.S. team, very different initiatives. What's the downside to, downside to being the biggest fast food chain um the downside is you are because of its scale you're actually very limited on the ingredients that you can use um as much as i would love fresh uh, fresh cilantro in a thing due to the volume mcdonald's could use up the world's resource of cilantro or there's a story that they were trying to do a fresh blueberry parfait and fresh blueberries only have a certain shelf life After the project progressed, they realized they would have to buy the world's resource of fresh blueberries for a certain amount of time in order to launch that item. And it would destroy the industry. It would not leave blueberries for anybody else. Frozen is a different, you know, different category. So, like, we can't do that. We're too big. Uh, The downside, too, is... They're probably right now in a too big to fail category. There are so many McDonald's in so many locations to your point as well, that they are very savvy in buying real estate. So they have all the land to make those on. So it's really hard for, you know, big drastic change to happen at a McDonald's because they're enormous and, uh, you know, it'd be hard for that. The perception of quality. So, oh, you you worked for McDonald's. You're the enemy. You're poisoning the world. You get all those kinds of comments. I used to get um, a handwritten uh, uh, cards and posted you know, postcards from different organizations saying because I was also part of their brand ambassador program. So I was allowed mm-hmm. to talk to media. In trade publications, I would do the morning show junkets and things like that. So they Mm -hmm. see Chef Mike. We're going to send Chef Mike hundreds of handwritten notes that, how did you do this? Why are you letting this happen? You should change this. I don't agree. And I, you know, would hand those off to the appropriate people. That's not my jurisdiction. In some cases, I absolutely agree with what they're saying. But my role within the company is to deliver on X, Y, Z and try to influence the quality of food in that manner. 
you know, I, I worked there for about four years and that was one of the, one of the reasons why I left was because I had no influence at all whatsoever. Some right. marketing would tell me what to do. And then when I would do that, owner operators would tell me I'm wrong. We want it this way. So I am, I am just kind of doing what everyone else says and have no outlet to make items that I think would work on a menu, even, even testing those items. There were not those opportunities for me. So ultimately I had to leave the company for uh, greener pastures. Yeah. It's kind of like being a puppet. You just couldn't. Right. Right. When I got hired, it was a little more chef focused. The uh, chef Dan Kudrow uh, was the kind of the corporate chef at that time. And he was, you know, Let's start doing um, fresh, never frozen quarter pounders. Let's do more produce. How do we make, you know, source better tomatoes and do all these things for fresher food quality? So for my first time there, it was very chef focused. Then there was a big shift in the industry and the ask uh, of the department and it became everyone else is telling culinary R&D what needs to happen just facilitate that. And that was not a, you know, I was not in a leadership role per se. Uh, I would be managing the supplier partner base, but I was not managing individuals myself. I had a, a couple direct reports, but it was, this is what you want done. This is what we need to do. So, um, yeah, ultimately I had to leave. Yeah. And it was, I know it's very tough to be a supplier to McDonald's because they say jump and you say how high and you do everything they tell you. I, um, it was not my thing to take advantage of a supplier partner relationship. I may or may not have seen people who loved, yeah, let's get some tickets. Oh, I, I always hang out. My friends are at this supplier, so I hang out with them more and, those little things that I noticed that I did not want to play that game mm -hmm. certainly still is going on as far as I know. But uh, that is not something that I wanted to partake in, you know, ethical wise. That was not my thing. So, yeah. Oh, I understand. The uh, So you left McDonald's and you went on to, I know, another ingredient company and you went and then you went into the your chef. Mike does stuff. Yeah, Tell so us about I, that. Uh, I left McDonald's in uh, what would it be? October or so of 2019. And then I was five months at Bell Flavors and Fragrances, which is important because March 2020, a global pandemic happens. And because oh. I was not uh, employed long enough at the company, I separated from them. And no. in the beginning of a global pandemic, I had to figure out how to support my family. So Leveraging the fact that I had the media training and worked with brands and always used social media as like a build my audience kind of scenario, I saw early on that having influence online is, I wouldn't say important, but a, a viable thing in the world to have mm -hmm. and sort of leverage that with some brand deals and other things going on. I did some marketing and ads for Wendy's. As a mm -hmm. former McDonald's corporate chef, here's my new favorite <laughs> breakfast, Wendy's ah. new breakfast and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I did funny. check to make sure I didn't have any contractual obligations with McDonald's ahead of time because, again, I'm making sure that I do everything appropriately and right. not burning bridges in that manner. So then That I, keeps you from getting sued, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so 
Um, so then I started my own YouTube channel. I started making content, doing brand deals uh, of not only food ingredients, food items, but I got into golf during the pandemic. Hey, use code Chef Mike at 10% off your golf clubs or look at these. No way. Yeah, all those <laughs> kinds of things as well. Uh, which, I saw the hand mixer one. I saw that. Yeah, yeah I got, yeah, the, they <laughs> sent me a pretty cool hand mixer to use and, and shout them out. Uh, at the same time, I was also a consultant. So I had a variety of major food mm-hmm. manufacturers that would uh, use me for uh, recipe development. I did a lot of actual training videos. So not the show. It is a cooking show. It was, here's how you use this processing equipment or... Mm-hmm. Here's the attributes of this, of our, our portfolio of frozen chicken. Here's an 11 ounce portion that you could use it in this manner. And that, so a little more dry, not dry, but informative sales mm-hmm. type of material. So I did a lot of that as well. Yeah, I can't imagine you being dry. <laughs> no, yeah, I, had to, I had to just, uh, you know, hit the talking points in those. But so then... Over two years later, I finally found a full-time role, which is where I've been working now for uh, a little over two years now. But, you know, it was the pandemic was not great for me financially. Uh, luckily, I was able to do some stuff to help a bit. But the uh, the job I'm in now came at a very, uh, a very nice time for me and my family. And, uh, yeah, I've been... been doing my R&D ever since. I talked to R&D people during the pandemic and they were, I was like, I don't understand how anything's getting done because they're in their kitchens, which obviously do not mimic a test kitchen at all, or even a lab, making things. And then I said, well, how did you, like you made it, but who else was going to try? They go, oh, we'd mail it to each other. Yep. So take yeah. all these products and mail them to each other and taste them. Now, that's okay in a shelf-stable product, sure. but you know you have to mail the ice cream mix and have them make the ice cream. Well, they might have made it different than you made it. And your your all this stuff. ice cream machine, and then you have to go to a Dairy Queen or somewhere where they sell dry ice and pack it appropriately. And like, yeah, it was a hassle. And even throughout R&D career, Every time big corporations get that email, hey, guess what, everybody? Working from home. I mean, R&D doesn't, but everybody else, you all can work from home because R&D needs analytical equipment, the lab, things of that nature. So while everyone gets to be a little more mobile, R&D chefs and folk, unless you have a pretty well-stocked kitchen at home, you are going into the office. It is not an easiest satellite type position, which, um, you know, for me, I remember what it's like to work in a restaurant in those bad hours. So, all right, I'll, I'll come into work every day. I would love to stay home, but if that's what I need to do to have nights, weekends, and holidays available, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely going to do that. Yeah. I talked to some and they actually, they I said, uh, one was craft. They actually didn't have them come in at all. It wasn't even like, you know, we're, you come on Mondays, you come on Tuesdays, you come on Wednesdays and, you know, work from home the other days so we don't even run into each other. They didn't do it. And then when the pandemic ended, they still went another six months and still had them working at home. I'm thinking, how are you people, I don't understand how you're surviving. I don't understand how you're making even a, a contribution at this point. 
I mean, there, I mean, there's still, I, I don't know if it ended, but there's still certainly protocol in place, um, you know, to handle what, what things like that. But the one thing that did help R&D chef food people is that they're trained in food safety, wearing gloves, doing everything. Oh, for, yeah. So like they could navigate a ultra clean world because that's the world they're supposed to live in anyway, where oh, yeah. average people like learned how important hand washing is. Yeah, well, a lot of people have been telling you that since day one to wash your hands regularly. Um, but so there were some things, I think, in, in pandemic life that came a little easier to R&D and food manufacturing folk than, uh, than others. Oh, yeah. There, but. Yeah, and some companies, some smaller companies, there are R&D people went in every day. And, you know, obviously everybody went in manufacturing. Quality. Sure. We had, well, they had to or we wouldn't have had food. That is absolutely, you know, they, that is, they couldn't uh, just go. Oh. We remember when store shelves, where's all the food? Well, nobody, farmers were having issues. There were dock workers when there were, you know, uh, cargo ships full of stuff just floating in water because there's not enough people to unload it. And truck drivers and, you know, everything involved, people stocking shelves, all of that was very drastically affected during that time. Um, you saw a lot less choice and more efficient. So there's not 15 versions of mac and cheese. There's the one, but there's a lot of the one. So that way mm -hmm. it was a little easier to deal with, uh, you know, what was going on. So there, there were, a, there was a year or two where the cool, innovative new flavors of things and all that, that halted real quick to change to what's the most efficient that we can do. Toilet paper now only comes in one size because yes. that's why everyone's <laughs> going to make the one size to be fair. Okay. <laughs> that's most efficient. But now that we're again, back in a little more uh, business as usual territory, those choices have and options have came back to us as consumers. And we have such short term memories. It's like, we're talking about this as if it was, in our childhood. And this was just a year ago, yeah. you know, that you couldn't find certain things. I was fortunate. So my daughters are six and four years old. And my, oh. um, my youngest was born in uh, October of 2019. So my kids were of the right age were sort of the school hybrid thing kind of ended as they mm -hmm. were going into kindergarten. So their schooling wasn't as effective, uh, affected as, you know, a couple years older kids. And, you know, you, you, I heard, so I have a lot of teacher friends as well where, yeah, these uh, kids who are coming into high school never experienced junior high. So they are coming into high school with sixth grader mentality. And it is very different because they were not in school for seventh and eighth grade with lockers and everything oh, yeah. that's involved in that. So now freshmen in high school are acting like sixth graders. And that is not, that is, does not compute for a teacher trying to teach high school level things. So there was, I mean, everything was affected uh, during that time for sure. Yeah. I was in that sweet spot. My grandchildren were either too young for for to be in school or they were homeschooled. So they didn't care. They just carried yeah, on. Yeah. And then my own children were obviously way past college. So we didn't have, I said, I'm, I'm in the perfect place. Yeah. Actually in our household, it was life continued on as normal. 
You know, except we couldn't go out at certain restaurants or we couldn't find toilet paper. Yeah. I was one of those people who didn't believe the toilet paper thing. I was like, come on, there's I mean, no yeah. way that we're going to be out of toilet paper. And everyone's like, you better go to the store. And when we got down to the last, you know, six pack or whatever, we went to the store and there was no toilet paper. And I was like, oh, we got a garden hose. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> I didn't go that far, but I said to some people, I said, you guys are going to have to be giving up some toilet paper because and they're like, no, there's not going to be any toilet paper for a couple of years. And I was like, no way. Yeah, I don't know about years, but yeah, there was, there was some time where like, Hey, did you, they, we heard, uh, the jewel down the street. They just got a load in it and everyone goes, Oh yeah, we, we got one. That's great. Yeah, we did that. I had a the manager of Sam's Club was a, someone I knew, nice. and I told him, I said, "You got to tell me when it comes in." Yeah, and we happened to be at the store when it came in. Oh, perfect! And so you know, we were like, "Oh, thank God, we caught some," you know. But we didn't fall into all of those things. So you had said uh, said to me previously that you had um, wanted to leave the restaurant you know, hours behind because you were in, you wanted to be in a band. That's right. Tell us about your band life. Well, um, I were, I was in two, uh, original hard rock metal bands in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> I still had full-time jobs during it. So I wasn't, you know, it wasn't go all in, but there were a couple years where I would have played 80 to 90 shows a year. So that would be Friday night, Saturday night, sometimes on Sunday, I did a little touring because my boss at the time was a big music fan. It was one of those people, Mark Kretzinger. He's an amazing individual. But if I, hey, you want to talk about like Pink Floyd or guitars and stuff during an important meeting? Meeting is now about music and guitars. So you can, you know, he's that kind of, uh, Mark, can I save up all my vacation days and go on tour down the South by Southwest for three weeks? And do, yeah, dude, awesome. Yeah, of course, we'll support you. So I was fortunate enough to have like a little support system with that. Um, and I tell people that to this day, some of the most important things I learned about being a business professional, I learned being in an unsuccessful, original, hard rock band. How do you get people to spend $5 to come see you when they know nothing about you? Do you need to be a good community member? Go out to other people's shows. How do you engage in an audience? Do you want to be the cool rock star that hangs out in the green room? Or are you upfront thanking people for showing up and supporting your opening band or supporting the headliner? Merch. How do you get people to come to your website? How can you promote appropriately? How do you build an audience? And I've applied all of that kind of mentality to everything that I do, including, you know, when I'm applying for a new job or if I'm working on my LinkedIn profile or how I'm engaging with people who know nothing about me. Um, so I, I kind of have that same mentality of nobody knows who you are. How do you start a brand from zero to where you are now? How does that apply to everything that you do? So I kind of, uh, that's a fun little story that I tell people is I learned quite a lot being an unsuccessful yeah. rock band, sleeping in vans, <sighs> smelling bad and doing what you got to do. 
Yeah. And what instrument did you play? What part was your in the I band? I played guitar and then I was the background screamer guy. So I would uh, do the jumping around <laughs> and screaming really loud and a lot of head banging. I still never had hair. So I was always the, the bald headbanger guy. Really? Yeah. So when did, did you give it all up yet? Oh, I, I haven't been in a band in quite a while. It's been, uh, that was right out of college. And I think I stopped really playing maybe 2014 or 2015 or so, somewhere around there. You know, again, it was, it did not make any money. It cost quite a bit of money oh, to no. do. Yeah. Uh, and I was a little more career focused. So I still, I still dabble, but I have all the other fun thing. Now that I'm in dad life, I've got all kinds of other things that I'm, uh, that I'm doing. Yeah. My, my husband plays the saxophone and he was in, you know, I mean, he did the whole college thing and then he did, uh, when he got older, you know, played at church and that kind of stuff. And then he, uh, started a band after our kids were, you know, he was in a band for a while. He just gave that up a couple of years ago, but all his friends that were in the band are now in all different bands. And we follow them around all over the area and listen to them every Friday and Saturday night. How many people so, are they usually playing for? A room, like uh, a room full of rowdy crowd or is it all oh, the wives and cousins and neighbors, they all come out? You know what? It really varies. If they're at an outdoor restaurant, it might be 100 people. If they're at, a, they do a lot of festivals and oh, stuff. Perfect. So festivals yeah. would be a couple yeah. hundred people, That's always a good, uh, you know, things like that. So they don't play for, you know, less like 20 people. They're not, they're they're not it's always at a music venue club where you got to promote and get people to show up that kind of. Well, the, the, it'll be a restaurant where they're the band that's playing for the night and they, you know, but it will be a restaurant where people will go, whether there was a band there or not. Yeah. They're showing up for the food no matter what. They're just playing, you know, but it's fun. So these guys are all in their, you know, mid to late 60s. Yeah, old man band. I'm sure yeah. I'll get back yeah. to it. I'll be an old man band. That's what I was going to tell you. You you still have to, a chance. You just wait till the kids grow up right. and and they're out of the house. And then you're looking around going, well, uh, you know, so keep playing the guitar because you want to get to the old man sure. band. Sure. Yeah. But I know that you you have been involved in some other the media things like, uh, what did I see? The Heroes Feast? Yeah, well, so there's two. Um, so not only, um, you know, did I want to be a rock star, I'm a big old nerd who plays all the video games, but I'm even more ah. of a nerd who plays Dungeons and Dragons uh, quite a bit. And okay. again, having a social media following, working when you work for McDonald's and you're media trained and an audience sees you. And then McDonald's corporate chef talks about how he's playing video games and Dungeons and Dragons. He's a real person. Oh, my gosh. So then you build a following in that arena as well. Uh, I did try to get McDonald's to go all in on kind of video gaming stuff using me. Uh, did not pan out how I would have liked it, but, um, I still use my own social media for that kind of audience and, and whatnot. And then, um, you know, had some brand deals with wizards of the coast who owns Dungeons of the dragons. Here's the new book. Here's the new dice. And then one day I got a call from a production company that said, chef, Mike, we Google searched D and D chef, and you are the first person that popped up. 
we are looking to create a TV show based on a cookbook called Heroes Feast, which I did not write. I had nothing to do with, but somebody sent it to me as a, hey, here's the Heroes Feast cookbook. You should buy it. Look at it. It's great. Uh, and they said, would you be willing to host a TV show where we cook recipes from this book? Absolutely. I love doing ridiculous right. side gigs like this. So I reached out to my current employer saying, hey, is it OK if I do that? Like I'll be gone for two and a half weeks filming in Burbank where all the studios are like filming a TV show. It took a little like understanding what it was, who the audience is. Um, and they're like, yeah, I mean, it's nothing to do with us. Our audience isn't necessarily D&D &D, uh, <laughs> &D gamers. It's more food menu. If there's no conflict of interest, go ahead and do it. Uh, so I went uh, and filmed 20 episodes of this show called Heroes Feast, which is now uh, new episodes are on Mondays on either the Freebie channel on Prime Video or it is currently it also airs new but also on demand on Plex, which is a free streaming service anybody could download and you could uh, search Heroes Feast and there's a bunch of uh, episodes that are currently on demand that you can see. So what, tell me, tell me about an episode. Tell me what the, the show's like. Um, so the shows were filmed. It was a SAG production. They were filmed after the writer's strike, but before the SAG actor's strike that we had, you know, a year and a half ago. So I was ready film a TV show. Let me get a prompter feed in lines. Nope. Hey, Chef Mike, Nobody can write a script for you. Nobody can put lines on a prompter. You're going to just host a show with this co-host you never met. Awesome. And okay. also, you never cooked any of the recipes from the book. You're going to cook it on camera, reading the recipe, making the thing. Okay, let's do it. Um, so basically, it is a show where me and my co-host, Sujata Day, uh, have a guest on every episode, and we cook a recipe or two from this cookbook with the guest. And it is very much a show that's supposed to be about learning how to cook. I fully admit to the guests, too, like, I never made this before. Let's figure it out. It says this. If we mess up, we're going to figure it out. Don't worry about it. It's also a little different than other cooking shows where almost exclusively we are eating the one thing we are making in order. We are watching it happen. So if we burn the heck out of it, we're going to eat some burnt whatever it is because that's the one we oh, have. Um, so, you know, our first guest was Matthew Lillard, who was from Scream and he was Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. And, you know, he's an actor, but he's a big old Dungeons and Dragons nerd. We've had guests like Kari Payton, who was King Ezekiel on The Walking Dead and did a bunch of voices for video games and cartoons, um, comedians, more the Dungeons and Dragons famous type people uh, as guests. And it was just a whole lot of fun to be in that world for a little bit. I would have liked a prompter. That would have helped quite a bit. But, uh, you know, we, we made it happen. And there's 20 episodes uh, that will – this is the whole season and filmed it in 10 days, 20 episodes in 10 days. They're about wow. 45 and you got episodes. To, oh, yeah. You had to meet a lot of good people and – A lot of talking. I, I learned about uh, how important it is to drink tea regularly. I'm not a big tea drinker but just for the throat to handle all that talking and – 
and all that. Uh, it was nice to have makeup uh, every morning and, you know, <laughs> polish the old bald head. To, like this, this is an issue when you're hosting on a TV show. Uh, this, the shine, shine you get right here, a lot of the matte powder uh, on the top of the head to cut that down. But We should have brought some with you today. I should have. I should have went to, I got to go to Costco with this bald head. I need like volume of, uh, of the matte finish powder, but. Um, oh, oh, I. I like that. So did they edit the show? So when you kind of screwed up or said something wrong, they fixed it? Oh, yeah. So the hardest part, the the loophole was, well, as we were filming, I constantly had to look down at this book to see what the next step is. I can't remember these things off the top of my head. And I never made it. So a lot of time is spent. Everyone's quiet. I look at this book, read what the next step is. I need a quarter cup of this now. So then I have to go back. All right, here we go. So we need a quarter cup of this ingredient, yada, yada. So there's a lot of that. It's all edited out. We finally got approval for me to write word for word the cookbook instructions on a whiteboard. So then it's me looking at the, okay, the next step is add three teaspoons of chili powder. (laughs) All right, Matthew Lillard, can you next? I want you to add three teaspoons of uh, chili powder to the dish. And then, you know, we figure that out, figure that out. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, the more I did it, cause this is the first time I did a show like that. You even see my co-host and me have the shtick down how we intro. Here comes the guest. We're going to throw it to commercial. You know, there's commercial breaks and stuff like that whole process closer to the end. We got the groove. We know how a show is made. We know how many parts, you know, there's usually four or five parts cold open, intro invite the guest we're gonna make this part then that part now we're gonna sit at the table and eat and uh it was a lot of fun to be a part of for sure what's the origin of the of the cookbook where did it come from the term hero's feast is something you can do in dungeons and dragons it is a you feed your adventuring party the night before so when you wake up in the morning you're stronger you're more sound of mind you get extra hit points or whatever it might be for you know in the game and then there were these three authors who have done some other dungeons they're big old nerds Um, who wrote the book and had some other chef consultant write the recipes for the book, became a New York Times bestselling cookbook, um, which I don't know the requirements of doing that, but it sold enough copies to be popular. Wizards of the Coast, you know, the owners, um, their Hasbro owns Wizards of the Coast. So it was really Hasbro that was like, let's do a cooking show. Um, because we want to make more digital TV content. There were some other TV shows that they made as well. One thing led to another, and they reached out to me to be uh, to kind of host the show. Again, the stars had to align that I got let go due to the pandemic. I created a YouTube channel that had cooking content of me in front of a camera just doing it. My YouTube channel was completely unscripted. I'm cooking one thing from beginning to end with if I burnt it, that's what's going to stay in. Yeah. I think they saw that as here's he's already does this kind of thing, which really mm-hmm. was the reason why I started that channel was facial recognition, how to make content in digital world. What are the steps? How do you promote? What are hashtags? How do social media algorithms work? And all of those kinds of things. 
And that actually led to them seeing that content when doing research. We know you could just turn a camera on and yap. There's no writers right now. You want to host the show? I'm like, yeah, I'll just wing it. Let's do it. Yeah. Which, uh, again, well, I know, you know, a little insider out there, Maureen and I talked, you know, can you make sure you have some stories and not so dry? I was like, all I got are stories. You turn the camera on, I'll just yap for as long as you need me to. So I think now you realize we could talk about all the things nonstop and you tell me when, I, yeah. when time is up. But um, what's it like cooking for TV? Um, it is, um, it is interesting, at least in our scenario, because there are people off camera that are helping measuring things, putting components together. These recipes are already written. So there is a guide in between scenes and cut. All right, you need to hold, there's a smudge on the thing. Let's wipe that up. Okay. Now let's switch equipment. Hey, Chef Mike, what equipment do you need for this next scene? I don't know. I never made this before. Let me look at the recipe. Uh, I think I need a pot. I think I need this, that, and the other. Okay. So sometimes the, the equipment that you're provided is not the most efficient for what you would do. Hey, we got, don't use the sink behind you. Cause that's not real. You have to go walk off set to use the water, wash your hands and all that stuff. I'm Serve safe certified. So I also had to be the onset food safety police. So I was like, no, we need to temperature this, you know, per SAG AFRA regulations. We need to do mm -hmm. all the steps for food safety. So there's a lot of managing that. Um, those lights kick your butt. So I would do two episodes a day of all these lights looking at cameras standing for so long, like, it kicks your butt at the end of the day. You're just like, Oh, I just want to go home. Oh, this is, Oh, we got one more scene to do. Oh, oh, wake up a little bit, slap your face. Yeah. This was so great. I had so much fun having you, but inside you're just, I just want to go. I just want to go to sleep. Um, I had my two kids and I was in California. So I agreed with my wife to wake up at, uh, 4:30 in the morning to greet them as they wake up on zoom calls. Like, Hey, good morning, girls. How are you doing? Yeah, Dad, tell me about your uh, day yesterday. Oh, good. That's great. <laughs> and still trying to interact with the family while doing all of this stuff. Uh, so it is a whole lot of work. You'd think that it's just show up and do the thing. Maybe when you're ultra mega star, you can uh, you could just show up and, and do it. But there's a lot of prep, a lot of figuring things out, at least with this show. But it was it was a lot of fun, but a whole lot of work. Were these like weird recipes? Like we're going to make something like, like you say to the kids, we're making dragon, you know, dragon meat. And, and it's really, you know, it's hot the, dogs. the description yeah. and the lore <laughs> behind the recipes. So there would be like, this is a dwarven meal with a dragon scale, but it was, we're using sand. <laughs> like there was meta knowledge of we're going to use salmon, but in the book, like this would be normally dragon because it was hunted or, it's this uh, type of root vegetable recipe because this race of, you know, uh, underdark monsters only live in caves. So they wouldn't have beautiful green vegetable in their dish. It'd be all mushroom and fungus. and So there was some logic into how the recipes are created based on the settings or if it's, you know, a high elf you know, more French cuisine, fancy 
item or this is a peasant food. This is what you would eat if you just slayed the dragon and now you want to go to a little, uh, you know, pub and drink a bunch of ale because you're bandaged up and beaten up. You want some stew uh, because it's hearty and you're starving. Well, we have those kinds of recipes too. So it was it was fun to be in that world and kind of cosplay the recipes as these you know different ingredients but we were all very realistic like it's actually salmon or the fire <laughs> breath it's from chili flake it's spicy that's why it's <laughs> dragon fire breath or whatever it might be so so what was your favorite recipe you did we did a ratatouille type item that it was my favorite because they showed me you know, it was one of the ones, hey, Chef Mike, come in the back and take a look at some of the camera footage we got. And I, you know, it was a big kind of uh, enameled uh, Dutch oven where the, you know, the tomato sauce component was on the bottom and we looped around the beautiful vegetables and things in this manner. And it's a shot of me sliding it on the table and it just looked like a sheet, like a Renaissance painting of vegetables and basil sprinkled on the top. Like it was an artistic, beautiful little shot of this thing in a high definition camera. I was like, that looks incredible on camera. And eating it, it still was very delicious and impressive. But that kind of like, look at the thing you guys made, never making a recipe before cooking with people who are not proficient in a kitchen, you all together made this amazing thing that when we finally slid the final thing on camera was like, a ah, here's the thing that was just so <laughs> colorful and beautiful. Like that to me was, was the coolest part of the whole thing of seeing the final item, the guests eating it. And then when the camera stops, the guests are like, this is great. I'm just going to eat the whole thing. Like we're not wasting it. We're eating the whole thing. Cause it's delicious. Like that part, uh, that was probably my favorite part. Now, was there any that you looked at the recipe and you went, you guys, this doesn't work? Um, not that this it didn't like, work, but they weren't my favorite. So we did one episode. So Kari Payton uh, is vegan. So we did uh, normally or, or no, actually, the recipe itself is called surrogate steak. And it's using those plant based proteins to make almost a Salisbury steak type item. And my job right now and what I do day to day is a lot of develop those plant-based items using plant-based proteins. I am not that consumer. So it just mm -hmm. wasn't my favorite dish because like I would just eat regular ground meat. That's just me. But Kari Payton, our guest was like, this is a man. Holy cow. Eating and crushed it. We had to tell him to slow down because you're going to finish before the episode is done filming <laughs> and we need food on the plate as we go. So like, all right, I know it's good, but you got to slow it down. So even the ones that weren't like my there was one that was also um, it was almost like a fruit cake that was a calorically dense dried fruit kind of pemmican style bar that was for mm -hmm. adventurers. You need a high calorie, low weight thing to feed yourself while you're in the middle of nowhere. Like, okay, this is campers and preppers would eat this for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, might not be my thing, but like, it's good. It serves its function. It's not nearly as good as the, you know, beef stew thing that we made. Um, but, you know, there were, there was not one that was bad per se that we really messed up on. 
Because I just wondered if that chef who wrote the recipes ever tested them. Because I've opened cookbooks yeah. before, looked at a recipe and went, that isn't going to work. And then when I tried it, it didn't work. Even, and I, went, I even nah. told everyone, the guests, the crew, I'm like, we're going to, is it okay to loosely follow? Like if uh, the math doesn't add up or we add something different, we cut it in a manner that's not. I made sure we talked about it on the episode. Like it says to do this, but you do whatever you want. There were uh. one of our sticks ended up being like, all right, I need you to add three tablespoons of garlic powder. And the guest accidentally pours in like the whole container. I'm like, Hey, huh, what do you think's going to happen if you add too much garlic powder? And my co-host would always be like, it's going to explode. And I'd be like, no, yeah. it's fine. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out if you add, you know, there's certain ingredients, especially in baking. If you add too much, it might make, you know, mess it up. But, you know, you cut the onions not as accurate as you wanted. It's fine. So that was also the vibe of the show was if you don't do exactly what the book says, you may allergies you may need to omit something like that's fine yeah figure it out do it and that was kind of part of the show was not necessarily being exactly accurate to what's written on the page so have any of these episodes aired or of all of them aired? Uh, not all of them have aired uh, i think there might be 14 or so that are out now the best place to okay. find it is if you download plex which is again a free streaming mm -hmm. service and then you could just search heroes feast through there and there's a bunch on demand. And do you know if it's how what the success has been? What have, the feedback I has have been? No idea. No um, idea. It's my understanding that shows like this, sometimes they come out on Plex. All right, all the shows are out. Now let's go pitch it to a bigger major studio to see if they would want to pick it up or whatever. That is something that is common. Um, it is kind of hard to find, you know, for an average person to know it exists. So I'm not really gauging. And just like you, I don't watch too many of them, you know, occasionally yeah. I'll, I'll, but like it's done, it's out. I hope everybody enjoys it. Go watch it. But you know, I'm critical as well. There is one see, and another reason why I don't want to watch it anymore is because I was talking and remember no script. I'm talking to mm -hmm. celebrities doing this. Oh, Chef Mike, what what happens when this, that, or the other? Uh, and I said, oh, don't you know, you know, 16 ounces is a cup and this, that, and, the other. and I said the wrong thing. 16 ounces is not a cup. Eight ounces is a cup. But I said it on camera and they left it in. And I'm like, why didn't anybody catch that? Well, they don't have yeah. Jeff's editing the, the show. I, I, mm -hmm. You know, if we had a script, I would have made sure to say the right thing. Um Oh, like you've ruined those it for little things. I hope my street cred does not get affected by that. But. Did you get any any guests that you're like, I don't even know who this person is? Oh, pretty you're regularly, like, yeah. I had to get a Google oh, yeah, him because I, I don't know who he is. I research to, uh, you know, find out a little more about them, some background, some stories. Some of them were some friends that I interacted with previous. You know, I've been, like I said, talking about Dungeons and & Dragons and have a little bit of a following on social media. So, like people I interacted with in the past. And then there was like, um, who would be a good example? Mika Burton, who's LeVar Burton, you know, from reading rainbow and all those, his daughter. And I grew up on reading rainbow. So it was all so nice to meet you. And your father was very influential with reading when I was younger and all that stuff. So 
And then my co-host directed a movie for Netflix that had LeVar Burton in it. And our guests did not know that the co-host directed that. Let me call dad up and talk about this. So I got to talk to LeVar Burton for one second on camera. Uh, like, LeVar Burton, I love you. You you help raise me, I said in the background. And he said, oh, Chef Mike, I love you too. And I don't know if that's going to air or not, but I had like an emotional reaction to somebody who I used to see on TV encouraging me to read, tell me that he loves me. So that part was cool. Aww. I hope it's still in the episode. It has not aired yet. But we'll see if they left it in. Do you have any more TV opportunities coming up? Nothing. No TV opportunities yet. I am uh, signed on to write a cookbook based on a very popular, very popular video game series. So I'm starting to do that. And then if you want to do some more digging, my wife, who was my fiance at the time, in like 2015, we were on a reality TV show. Uh, called A Wicked Offer, where you prank your friends and family for money. Uh, nobody watched that one either. It was on the CW network, but it paid for my wedding and my honeymoon. So, so you did you win the show? Or we did won. You just- so you could win up to $50,000, and we won $42,000 on the show. All right. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That's fascinating. And since nobody saw it, it was just like free money that nobody remembers it happened and wedding and honeymoon yeah. were uh, taken care of. Was this like a one season show? It happened once um, or did it happen for yeah, a while? The, the show had one season. Every episode was a couple. You know, ours was uh, here's a couple that uh, wants to pay for their wedding and their honeymoon. Let's see what you do that. I come to find out that there are other episodes of that were a little less appropriate that I probably would not. Um, So this couple is struggling to have children. So they need to lie to their friends and family about maybe they Uh. are pregnant. Hey, congratulations. We're pregnant. Oh, just kidding. We're not actually pregnant. We're doing this to get money to get the uh, IBF, you know, I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that. No. I would never do that to my family. That's tacky. Very That's much tacky. so. So our episode was the lighthearted, funny one. And there were some other episodes that I was like, I, I, if they asked me to do this again, I wouldn't. I didn't know that's what some of those other episodes were about. Um, and like, I don't know how real all of that is either because – There were a lot of things on our episode. I lived in a condo at the time. The the people making the show came to the condo. They're like, this isn't big enough. We're going to Airbnb a place in Wrigleyville by Wrigley Field. And we're going to say that that's your house. And then you have to prank your friends and family that and but they have to think this is your house. They know I don't live here. Like they already realized that this is BS made up movie TV show. I'm assuming in those other episodes, hopefully they knew what was going on because I would never really prank my friends and family in that manner on some of the topics that they did. So I am hoping that they cleared that with their families uh, before they did it. Yeah, and you must have had a nice wedding for $42,000. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, well, that's pre-tax. So half of that, remember, half of that is gone. So we saved the half for tax time. 
so I still had a wonderful wedding and stuff. My family and my wife's family also pitched in, but it was the the yeah. last note I will say about the show, and it's a pretty funny anecdote about how wonderful our parents are. So the second half of the episode, uh, we were engaged. The wedding date was set. Um, the, the shtick is a lawyer comes into your house and says, for this amount of money, you have to do this. But for more money, you have to do that. So for $20,000, you have to convince your family that you eloped. You're already married. We're going to make fake videos of you at a wedding, your vows, and we're going to convince your family that that happened. But for more money, and because I played guitar and was in bands, and for reference, my parents would come to the one in the morning, middle of nowhere metal show to support me no matter what, even if it was they didn't want to go. I have the very supportive family. You need to convince your family that you are now a signed musician and you can't get married because your fiance is going to be your manager. So the, the wedding is postponed indefinitely. Okay, let's go for that one. I would go for that one. Oh, for sure. And my parents yeah. would know, hey, I've been in a band. I've been practicing. We just got, they would have been like, we, you've never told us this. How is this real? So I think they knew it wasn't. But my mother and father-in-law immigrated from Poland. Uh, so they are, my wife is first generation. English was her second language growing up. They walk in, I'm playing a show uh, I'm sorry, Teresa and Chester. I just wanted to let you know that we're going to have to cancel the wedding because you, my, you know, your daughter's going to be our manager and we're going to go on tour and I will clean up the language. But my father-in-law says, this is fantastic. You're living your dream. That's why we came to this country because we wanted our children and everyone to live the dream. And this is great. And every producer who's doing the show is like, they want the hot confrontation, mad, everything. And my mother and father-in-law were like, awesome. You succeeded in your dream. That's wonderful. So even me and my wife, like between camera shots, were like, what are you guys going to do now? This is, they're like, I don't know. This is, this is not what we expected. You win. But, uh, you know, your mother and father-in-law and family are very nice. Like, yep. Good try though. But, uh. Yeah, they supported 100%. So, Oh, I think that's hilarious. My, that is, my mom, they deserve that. We had to film one more part after that, like the reveal that we lied and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And my mom works in a school, so she could not show up the next day for filming. But on camera, my dad comes in and says, your mother is so upset that you lied to her. She couldn't even she didn't even want to show her face today because you lied to her about this, that and the other. And realistically, she just had to work. She couldn't show up. They kind of knew that this was fabricated and all that stuff. And my dad played it up like son that's incredibly disrespectful to your mother. She was up crying all night last night. And that is not what happened. Uh, but on TV, that's what uh, that's what they made it seem like. So reality TV at its finest. Well, I'll tell you reality, and we do not have enough time on any podcast to tell you the whole story. But I had a whole wedding planned to get married. Let's say I'm going to get married on a Friday. We were going to leave on Saturday to go on a cruise, return back from the cruise, and go to a second reception. So I lived in Chicago, but that's not where my family was. So I was going to get married in Chicago, go on a cruise, 
return to Pennsylvania for that side of the family and friends and have a reception and then return home to Chicago. So this is cruise in the middle, two receptions on either end. I get sick the day before the wedding. I mean, sick emergency surgery. Oh, no. Sick. Yeah, like they told my husband, it's very possible she will not make it through the surgery. Gosh. So you need to say goodbye to her now. And I couldn't figure out why he's saying goodbye to me, you know, like crying. So I go in the surgery, obviously. I came out of the surgery. Oh, I, I wasn't sure. And oh, my gosh. I know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know you were wondering. So I call, So I, I find out after... You know, like I I had the surgery in the morning. I, I wake up at like midnight and that's when I find out what surgery I had. I don't even know what they operate on me for. It wasn't like they asked my permission. And then, uh, so we have to cancel the wedding, the cruise, and the second reception. And this is back when there was no such things as insurance, all that no, kind of stuff. You're not getting a refund? Absolutely not. Oh, guess, you don't want to bet? Uh-huh. All these people... All of them were like, oh, this is so terrible. The florist is like, no problem. He just sold all the flowers and other arrangements. The caterer, the caterer said, whatever I can throw in the freezer goes in the freezer. The rest of the stuff I use for other, other um, things I have going on. The cake was made by my sister-in-law. So she actually was like, what are we going to do with this cake? And my father was sitting there when she said this, we do this cake. He goes, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm going to eat yeah, it. Yeah, might and as well not waste it. Here we go. <laughs> and so they ate the cake. And the hospital let me have as many visitors as I want. So my 20, 30, you got to understand, I had like 200 people come to the first reception and I had 250 come to the second. So this is a lot of people. This isn't like 30 and 30. And then we, uh, so I... We have to, it's November and I have to get married before the end of the year or I'm going to get killed in taxes, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Most important part is the financial obligations of the marriage. Yes. My, my, my fiance, now husband, he's telling my parent, we have to, this should have, I should have been on a reality show and got money for this. Yeah, for sure. Because he convinced him. My mother's going, get married in the hospital. Just get married in the hospital. Everybody's here. Just get, yeah. I'm like, I am not getting married uh, in the hospital. There's no way I'm going to do this in the hospital. And then do a wedding later. Married now, yeah. wedding later. No. So you have to understand, we're calling everybody at airports and places and telling them not to show up. And, you know, because it's, and this is all happening while I'm in surgery. So I miss all this. And then, so we decided to get married a month later. On December 21st, and it was a Monday. <laughs> you got well, some I good figured, deals on Monday weddings, I will tell you that. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, you get, we got everything. We got the place we wanted. We got our caterer said yes. Everybody said yes. But also, doesn't everybody go shopping, like, to all hours of the night on during Christmas? So I figured they could show up at a wedding. But the problem was I had to figure out who wasn't coming, you know, who didn't come the first one could come now, and who, you know... So I had to redo the whole invitation list and basically reinvite everybody to see who now is going to show While up. you're recuperating from potentially life-threatening <laughs> surgery, like Aunt, Aunt Mary, I don't remember where, like you, you got other things to worry about than <laughs> yeah. Aunt Mary well, is coming. And it was And it was abdominal surgery. So when I went to get dressed for my wedding, I hadn't had my wedding dress on since the month before. And I'm going, is it going to fit? Am I... You know, if have I gotten bigger front sensory? Have I gotten smaller? 
And, you know, and luckily I, I put it on. It was a little big, but nothing that anybody would notice. That is one heck of a story. So yeah. Oh, well, I'm not even giving you the full story. So I want to give people the full story. And like I said, we don't have time. I have one you know, prizes on cruise ships when you want to hear wedding stories because people's wedding stories are like, oh, the cake fell over or my dress ripped, you know, and I'm like telling this story. And one, one I was telling one time, we weren't even this far into the story. The guy goes, you win. We don't even need to hear the rest. You just win. <laughs> you never heard the end of the story. I've been to newspaper articles for the story, everything, because it's so, it was so funny. And, um, but that's my my wedding story. Like I said, we don't have time to go through the whole we'll story because we'll, we'll all the little. Two. We're going to do a part two where we're just oh a part two. <laughs> I'll do a podcast on yeah, wedding stories. I got, I got plenty yeah. other stories too. I got. I'll leave. I won't tell you the whole story where I honorarily inducted into a biker gang. That's Ooh. a good story. How okay. I know that I have the most official Cubs World Series baby, and my wife has given me permission to tell the story. Okay. Uh, and then um, how I um, – I don't know if your son is old enough to have watched Rick and Morty, but the Szechuan sauce fiasco was all my fault at McDonald's, uh, which became an internet viral global sensation that was all my fault. So I have those three stories for the next time. Oh, we are going to do this yes. again. Yes. Do you have anything else to promote before we close? Because I think now we're going to save some things for next time. We have to figure out when next time is. This is uh, we'll, going to be fun. We'll get something. We could, hey, we could do series. Oh, absolutely. The <laughs> whole Chef Mike series. Maybe it's our own, a whole different podcast of just the stories. But um, yeah, we could. I'd say if you want to follow me, I'm on almost uh, all of the social media uh, site. So you just type in my last name and it's spelled just like it sounds. H-A-R-A-C-Z Harris. I mean, yes. it's just like it. Uh, I think you like should change. <laughs> uh, check out Heroes Feast, uh, new episodes on Monday uh, on either the Amazon Freebie channel or on Plex. Uh, and look out for a future Chef Mike cookbook based on some video games and... I think that's all the big stuff at the moment. So That's great. This was a lot of fun. Excellent. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much for being here.